Hi everyone, this is Mo Zafzal, Chief Investment Officer for EFG, and you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. So today we have um, Joaquin Tool, who is uh, actually very nicely sitting next to me, or, or socially distanced next to me, um, on the on the podcast, and uh, uh, very nice to have you over, Joaquin. Great. Thank you, Moss. It's good to be on this side of the table. Yeah. So today we're going to do a, um, a deep dive on the uh, uh, macroeconomic situation in Latin America and talk about the market strategy and so on and so forth. So um, maybe, Joaquin, before we kind of delve into that, uh, tell us a little bit, bit about you've been with EFG for some time now. So tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So that's that's right. I've been at EFG for, it's going to be 10 years now in September. Wow, gosh, 10 years yeah, already. <laughs> getting to 10 years. That's my second spell at EFG because previously I've worked on the private banking side back in the office in Montevideo in Uruguay. Um, so I worked for, for a while there and then I moved um, to London to do a, a master's degree. And uh, I, I joined EFG for three months initially with a um, internship with the long only fund selection team, which then became a permanent job. And then for the last three years, I've been part of the macro team here in London. So quite some time. Absolutely. And you've been the key expert tracking all the COVID data around the world on our, on our uh, macro meetings and obviously publications. Uh, so, so maybe I'll introduce the topic a little uh, first. So within our global asset allocation, we've been underweight. Uh, Latin American uh, equities and, and currency uh, over the last, actually pretty much last 12 to 13 months now, uh, ever since COVID broke, we identified emerging markets as being particularly vulnerable. And, and that indeed has been the case fairly consistently over the last 12 months. And one of my very kind of lasting memories of the publications at EFG in, um, I guess it was a kind of spring, early summer of 2020, when you wrote uh, an in focus piece saying winter is coming, mm. which uh, which uh, I think I thought was a uh, very prescient at the time, and obviously we have winter coming again <laughs> twelve months later. So clearly we we've seen uh, the the number of cases uh, spike, COVID cases spike. Uh, clearly that's starting to have um, uh, an impact on, on the economy. So um, you know Brazil has had twelve million infections as of uh, as of today. And we have eighty odd thousand cases per day, and, and nearly three thousand deaths per day. So um, it clearly is starting to become uh, quite challenging again. Um, and obviously, we've also seen some challenges uh, as well on the economy. So let's maybe let's, that's the I guess the reason why we've been underweight in in, in Latin America and, and relatively cautious. Uh, maybe let's delve into. Um, into the macro side and and really what's driving that. So uh, maybe you start with Brazil. Obviously, I gave, gave a quick summary in terms of the the COVID cases. Any further observations on on COVID from your perspective? Yeah. So first of all, it's it's important to mention that uh, one of the main differences um, in in Brazil with respect to the rest of the region was that from the start of the pandemic. Um, President Bolsonaro was pretty much in denial of the of the gravity of the situation and how much uh, it, it it could um, it could cost the country, um, and that has clearly materialized in 
the country really suffering um, uh, a very high rate of, of infections across across the country with a, with health systems that are not entirely prepared for that. And they've seen the the ICU units in pretty much every state being overwhelmed with uh, with with cases and uh, the the actions from the government have been so bad that even in in the in some cases in in some of the the favelas in rio the people that have been implementing the social distancing and the, the wearing masks have been the 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 drug lords, let's say, mm. from the favelas that that take over the responsibility from the from the local governments because the the president is not going to enforce any of these measures. So uh, it's definitely been a very particular situation there, um, and clearly is now uh, out, out of control, and that is affecting not only the domestic economy but also all the the bordering countries um, the, that. With, with Brazil, which are now suffering the, also the, the spread of the new variant of the virus. So obviously, Bolsonaro has, has to take some responsibility, in fact, a lot of responsibility. Generally, the impression I always had was that the Brazilian hospital system is actually quite quite good for for an emerging market mm -hmm. uh, and a bigger emerging a big emerging market. But clearly, the preparedness was was not sufficient and, and not recognizing the the um the potential economic damage is probably yes. the most uh the most important point so let's mm -hmm. talk about bolsonaro he's obviously made some changes on his um um within his government and uh there's been a bit of a, a revolving door developing uh, maybe you could uh, tell us about some of those uh, things yeah so yeah you, you you're right one of the things that uh, that have characterized his government's been the the, the change of direction in, in some of these uh, ministries and recently his intervention in the economy by replacing the the ceo of petrobras uh replacing the um, the health minister for the for the second time um replacing some of the uh, other members of his party or politicians say in, in, in government there, his chief chief of staff as well. All of, all of these uh, changes have just added more and more uncertainty uh, from the investors point of view on, on, on Brazil. Um, I, I think that still the key figure for his government has been uh, the finance minister, uh, Paulo Guedes, who was uh, is kind of in charge of the whole economic situation. And from the get go, he was uh, intending to be the first minister to pass all of these reforms that were necessary. The pension reform was clearly the first milestone for his government pre-pandemic and the tax and administration reforms that starting to, to be in uh, trying to be passed and discussed in, in, in Congress were kind of delayed by the, by the pandemics. And that's why there hasn't been much time to make any progress on that front. But still on the economic front, Brazil, the, the Brazilian central bank and the, and the Ministry of Finance, they pretty much, uh, to use an analogy, they push all the buttons. They use every tool that was there uh, at their disposal to try to um, to help the economy. And to a certain extent, it did help. It did help to that uh, they actually brought rates down quite significantly. A huge amount of monetary accommodation, a significant uh, fiscal package as well was 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 passed. And therefore, they uh, even reverted to quantitative easing for the first time in the in their history, which was something that uh, they have not done um, they have not done before and that helped them to to avoid let's say a big decline on um, in, in in GDP as around four percent was only the, the the decline last year which in comparison to some of the other countries in the region is actually um, a very good thing however since the recent events on the political front with 
former President Lula Silva being uh, now allowed to to run for for election next year, from now on every policy decision is going to be kind of um, tainted with a with an election bias, let's say. So every decision that Bolsonaro will, will make from now until October next year, when the elections are um, are scheduled for, uh, it's going to be something thinking on on that. And he's very reticent to close the economy, to close shops and everything, because he wants to keep the economy running. It's it's mainly uh, a political decision rather than an economic decision. And that is obviously has meant that the real has depreciated. We start to see inflation coming back up again. And obviously they've had to act on, on rates. Um, maybe you can yeah. describe that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the central bank was the, the first one to kind of uh, front load the, the strategy of, of tightening, the, the, or starting this, this tightening cycle uh, in response to a rising uh, inflation and the risks of losing that anchor on inflation expectations. And so the, the central bank went ahead of expectations and, and high rates by 75 basis points, which was more than pretty much what everyone was anticipating. And they were very clear that they expect to, to hike again by the same magnitude now at their next meeting in, in May, with subsequent hikes before the end of the year, um, if the data um, uh, says so, let's say. Um, so definitely that has been a first move, a big move in, in, in emerging markets in that front. And this has probably been, been, been triggered by inflation being fueled by um, increasing energy prices and in, in food prices, which we have seen recently that on the, um, uh, on the producer price index, which normally leads the, the, the CPI. And, and at the moment, inflation is just over 6%, which is a um, couple of uh, percentage points above the, the actual target for the central bank. So they really want to take action into this. They want to use their credibility that they've built over the years to, um, to send a strong signal to the market that they are, they are, in a, they are on track to tackle inflation. And, and this, will probably, this will probably help to stabilize the, the real, which uh, recently has been um, underperforming. But um, the potential fiscal agreement for another... Um, another fiscal package and this rate hikes could potentially be be positive for for the stability of the of the real going going forward lula going for going for it again what's the what's the chances of that happening or he's going to nominate uh, someone to uh to, to go with him it's it's hard to tell because it, First of all, you would question what is the motivation for him to to run again right he had already his terms he already put um, Dilma, who was his nominee in charge, and then so his his potential to return, it's it's just a very um, different figure to Bolsonaro. It would definitely separate the the waters, let's say, in Brazil between uh, the Workers' Party Lula da Silva and the right wing former army general Bolsonaro. It would be like big difference between the two. Um, at the moment, when you look at um, at polls, they are very close. There's no, uh, depends which poll you, you look at, depending what, what the result that, that, that looks. Um, I think there could be potential in Brazil for, um, for a third figure, for uh, someone more uh, from the center mm. to take a little, to take that part of the market that would probably not be that polarized uh, in favor of one or the other. There's a big re rejection with Lula. Um, and his former uh, the corruption allegations and stuff like that, regardless of 
what the, the Supreme Court might have said. But the, the perception on the people is is is, is quite um, polarizing. And with Bolsonaro, it's the same. It's a it's a figure that's been always associated with uh, a big support of Donald Trump, uh, denier of the of, of of the COVID pandemic. So it's it's definitely maybe a more market friendly candidate uh, potential for a person like that. I, I can imagine could be could be very good, very positive. Um, who that person could be, I don't know. Well, I certainly were, the political scene is going to remain very volatile. I think that's certainly that's one thing we can say. But, uh, you know, he, he, it, it looks as though he's going to make um, Biden versus Trump look very tame in comparison, oh, yeah. given yeah, yeah. how polarized the uh, the two parties are, so uh, or the two or individuals are as well. Um, which is uh, which is very interesting. So, just to sum up, continue credibility from the central bank, continue credibility from the uh, the authorities with the the rate hikes. Hopefully, inflation starts to come down. We'll start to see uh, you know stability kind of returning, but we still have the big hangover of the political um, challenges in in the, in the in the background. Yeah, uh, certainly for the, for the time being. You know, I think Brazil remains a very close economy, a very um, domestic-oriented consumption economy. Um, so definitely, it will become um, maybe it can lose from from a pickup in global trade. So Brazil still is, uh, as a percentage of GDP, they don't have that much trade with with the rest of the world. So that mm. could be a bit of a, of a headwind for them, um, and that's why maybe there's more opportunities on the corporate side, um, on more exporter sectors rather than. On, on, on sovereign assets, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. So um, I guess um, an economy that's probably, you know, given its proximity to the US is um, is coming back and looks at maybe the kind of preferred investable candidate at the moment is obviously Mexico. Um, how's Mexico getting on with, I mean, still again, <laughs> I think this is uh, a theme that no doubt we're going to touch upon over the next, you know, uh, 25 minutes or so around political issues. There seems to be political issues in every country, Latin America. Hmm. Again, same thing in, in, in Mexico, you know, controversial, uh, controversial government. But the, I guess the main positive is the proximity to the US and hmm. some new friends from afar. Yes, that's right. If, um, if anything, I'll say, uh, the, the situation in Mexico, the difference between Mexico and some of the other countries is that Mexico was quite uh, blatant at prioritizing their fiscal stability over the health crisis in the country. So their fiscal package of just around 2% of GDP was one of the smallest across the whole region. Um, and that was a, a big statement from, from López Obrador in terms of they wanted to maintain the, the, the the sustainability of their fiscal accounts. They didn't want to go all out in, into this. Um, now Mexico is paying with this, with one of the highest mortality rates because of COVID of just over 9%. Mexico is, is paying for that with a very short, uh, a big shortage, let's say, of, um, of vaccines as well. I was reading that uh, Mexicans, uh, middle-income, high-income Mexicans are traveling to the US to get their vaccines because Mexico is not offering them. Um, so whoever can escape the country can go to the US and get a, a two week holiday to gather two doses of the vaccines. They're, they're, they're just doing that. And the, the main, um, let's say, driver of the Mexican economy last year um, has been consumption just purely based on transfers from, from the government, transfer from the government um, and, um, 
and a record high level of uh, remittances from from the US that are, that are ever so so important it's around 4% of GDP equivalent in terms of, of remittances, which was the big driver for, for consumption. But definitely, I think more um, optimistic growth from, from the US and, and better growth prospects based on the, the recent fiscal package in the US could have a, um, a good spillover of almost 1% of GDP into, into Mexico. Um, and also some very positive trade links between Mexico and China, uh, which has been investing heavily in, in the country, especially in the, in the automotive, um, automotive sector. So, um, I guess backdoor NAFTA, right? So, um, exactly. so maybe you can articulate that a little bit more. Yeah. So, um, one of the, one of the advantages of, of this new NAFTA trade deals, USMCA deal, um, for, for China has been providing them a, an entrance to, to the big market. And so not only in the, in the automobiles, but also in the auto part sector, given lower, um, uh, lower wages in, in Mexico, um, has and the need for Mexico to get foreign investment, uh, from abroad has, has driven this, this push from, from China, which has, uh, it has the potential to, to, to work very well. Let's remember as well that López Obrador and Trump had a very good relationship uh, between the countries. They, despite all the the rhetoric from from Trump against Mexico, the relation between the two countries was was very positive. So, it's uh, we need to see how this is going to work with the new administration and whether the Biden administration would actually enforce the um, the minimum wage commitment that is uh, they have uh, agreed in the in the USMCA. So. It's, it's still to to be seen. However, I think Mexico has the the potential to to be one of the big uh, outperformers, and the and the Mexican peso maybe to be um, to be one of the winners. So better performance expected on the on on that front. They still have a lot of potential to to uh, to ease rates if they, if they wanted to. Mexico. Uh, policy rate is around four percent, so they still have a bit of potential to to ease if, if they if they needed to probably they they won't they already um uh cut rates by around 300 basis points um during 2020 so they did provide that part of stimulus um but with a stronger fiscal position with a uh, little risk of uh, of dead rise and a, and a strong uh, dynamics for for the economy it could be a potential outperformer for um on the currency side, the, the, the Mexican peso. Okay, so uh, certainly sounds within the region, one of the kind of more uh, positive stories. Um, so let's move uh, south and uh, now to, I guess, the tip, um, depending on which side of the fence you sit on, it's either Chile or Argentina, right? So let's, let's go to the Chile one. Um, obviously, um, over last, uh, well, sorry, not last year, the year before, there was, um, uh, you know, lots of riots around, um, you know, reform, a lot of anguish for a lot of the pension funds. And, and I guess this, in some respects, it's laying the ground to what we're seeing in the United States today in terms of this, you know, uh, big gap between rich and poor, um, which, uh, which really sort of came out and kind of f famously, um, you know, interrupted, um, some of it was, I think it was a G7, right? So, uh, although it was a cl and climate change, I think it was both. It was a, it was a climate change conference and, and I think it was a G7. So, uh, and, and interrupted and everything got kind of got canceled and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, 
and obviously there was you know uh, uh, riots in the region. But I think you know looking at COVID cases, vaccination rates, you know Chile is just way ahead of anyone else, right? Yes, that's right. So Chile, um, consistent with their with their trade policy of being open to the rest of the world, they um, they managed to get hold of uh, of a lot of vaccines mostly coming from china so they they've been implementing the, um, the sinovac uh, vaccine and that has been working um, very well for them so now they have um, i think it's almost 40% of the population uh, vaccinated with the first dose and they're they're on track for 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 this consistent with what has happened in other uh, um, let's say emerging economies such as uh, I think it's Hungary and Serbia that they also have a similar type of population and cases started to come down. So Chile uh, started vaccinating and then closed again the economy because of this spike in, in cases. Um, just, they are just at that moment when they're waiting for the immunity, let's say, to start, uh, to start working uh, so that they can, they can reopen. Um, as you said, uh, the protests um, in at the end of 2019 were uh, were a big game changer on the political front in in, in Chile. It um, it created this whole movement that that ended up in the in the drafting of the new constitution that are in the process of um, of, of of doing, and it's going to be submitted to a to a referendum as well. So there's going to be a lot of discussion on the political side um, over what is the direction that the country should be taking. There's been a lot of questions on um, on the pension systems, on the way these, these things are funded. We can touch a little bit on that. Um, but um, it's definitely a, a, a shift in time for, for, for Chile. I think the, the pandemic, in a way, uh, helped Piñera's government to get everyone on board with the policy. Uh, to get everyone on board with what needed to be done and where the government needed to spend to uh, sort of like an agreement uh, that this was an emergency they had to to tackle this first. Um, and Chile suffered a almost 6% decline in GDP last year. It was quite a significant drop for for a country that has historically been uh, praised for its, its solid economic management. Um, I think this this changed a lot for the, the conditions for for them. Um, the government's been supplying, uh, pr providing a big amount of support for, um, for, 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 for the government, for the, for the people. And actually the, um, the, the central bank, uh, has cut rights to, uh, I think it's around 0.5 at the moment. So there's no more space for, for rates to, to go down at the moment. Expectations are that Chile is not going to, to high grades until probably the end of the year when you might have seen a, a bit of a um, pickup in, in the pressure in, 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 in inflation. But Chile is going to be, as, together with Peru, going to be one of the big beneficiaries of the, of the commodity boom. So we're seeing industrial metals and copper in particular have uh, very good performance this year. They're up 16% year to date. So this is definitely going to be reflected in the in the results for Chile, this could be a very good uh, tailwind for for the economy there. Yeah, well, it certainly seems to be, or oh, has always been one of the best managed in the region uh, for sure. They seem to have, certainly from from our our perspective, all this all this way, uh, you know, seems to continue to manage to do things very very well. And actually, you know, certainly internationally, we haven't heard much about 
the new constitutional reforms and uh, and 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 their impact it seems to kind of die down everyone's kind of getting getting their head down getting back to business and of, as you say the commodity prices is and copper in particular um you know is very positive for them um yeah. as well and uh, of course, wine exports will continue. <laughs> exactly. No, and, and Chile has the advantage that they, they've been very good at, at, um, at exploiting that advantage they have. Um, Peru has followed through and, and, and definitely it could, be, it could be one of the good pickup stories. Like this year, they're expected to, to recover, to rebound another 6%. So maybe if I had to put a bit of money where which areas would, would, would be would benefit uh, would probably be the, the the Andean economies for sure. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk about a little bit about Peru. Um, obviously, the political situation is you know as problematic as always, but the uh, central bank and the government institutions have a really good track record of managing the economy. Whoever happens to be the the uh, the government and uh, and obviously um, the underground economy is absolutely huge. And uh, certainly has made quite a big. Uh, um, it's one of those economic wonders of the world, if yes. you like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's um, it's surprising to see that over the last twenty years, um, the the economic performance of the country has been very good, with very orderly fiscal um, fiscal rules uh, implemented and um, good independence from from the central bank. Um, in relation to to the government, uh, and the country has managed to to grow consistently every year. I would say, despite politicians in the country, um, since uh, yeah, 10, 20 years to now, Peru has been tainted by by numerous amounts of uh, corruption charges or or different issues that have uh, finished with presidents being impeached or or similar, and. And probably this political noise will, will continue this time as well. So now we've had the first round of elections in Peru recently, and uh, we have the top two candidates out of 19 potential candidates. So the top two are quite polarizing candidates. On one side, you had Pedro Castillo, uh, who, who is not very marked not very market friendly, let's say, uh, quite a big left wing, uh, left, left wing views. And then on on the other hand, you have uh, Keiko Fujimori, the, the daughter of the former president as well, who who's also been tainted by by corruption allegations, and she is um, she's not really well liked from by, by the people. So, if anything, coalitions will be very important in the election, and that would mean that there's not going to be much governability in the country. So I don't expect much from the political front in Peru. If anything. Um, all this political noise will probably be a problem for the currency. Will continue to be an issue for for investors at the moment, which will look for some certainty before investment returns to to Peru. And probably after the election, it will probably return to to normal. Peru had the worst um, results in terms of economic management last year, with over ten percent decline in GDP, despite implementing a, an over 12% of GDP fiscal pa package. And this has been due because uh, over, I think it's 75% of the population work in the informal sector in Peru. So once the economy was forced to, to close, everyone that was just living on hourly wages or on temporary jobs, they just 
lost completely their their, their income, and they and that was a was a big hit for the for the economy. We're looking at unemployment, which is around probably twelve percent. But uh, if you actually look at the numbers of of people that have been discouraged from the labor force, probably get closer to twenty percent of unemployment. Mm. So tough situation, but definitely they have the resources to to turn these things around. It will take time. It won't be this year. It will probably take them maybe two or three years to return to to, to pre-COVID growth levels. Mm. That uh, that dip, but given driven by the informal, you kind of forget the informal economy is that big. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when there is a hit like COVID, it has a much bigger bigger or it's magnified in in, in essence the um, the economic hit right because yeah. uh, the the I guess you're not measuring it before. And then suddenly you are measuring it because uh, um, because of the, the the complete shutdown of the economy. Yeah, um, and and it's been interesting. One of the the difference uh, in the the type of actions that was taken was the both in Chile and in and in Peru the the governments passed two bills where they allowed people to withdraw funds from their pension accounts, and now there's a third one under discussion in the Chilean um, Congress. But this had a big um, hit. This caused a big hit on the on the funding of the of the pension systems there, which definitely helped to get people the money they needed for the their spending. But it poses a big question over the long term, and what would be the the what will the government need to do in the long term to actually help these people once they they have to uh, to retire. Certainly, some some long term um, some long term uh, tail risks there. Lima is one of my favourite destinations for food. Um, so if you do get a chance to get there, our head of office in in uh, in, in Lima and Ana Maria de Brocamonte is uh, also knows the best restaurants in town as well. So hopefully she's listening and uh, and uh, just remember that we are thinking of uh, coming at some point when. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll join you when you go to Peru <laughs> yeah, and we'll. we'll. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, so a couple of my best restaurants in the world are in Lima. So let's um, move, I guess, a bit more north to Colombia. Uh, I always find Colombia kind of very interesting. At one point, it used to be uh, an, uh, an oil nation uh, that, that has depleted over the years you know, rather dr- dramatically. But um, uh, any thoughts on, uh, on Colombia and how they are tackling uh, COVID and what the economic development looks like? Yeah, so in in Colombia, they say oil is the 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 their main their main export there, mining definitely. But the the inherent problem on the current account balance and the financing of the current account has been something that's been uh, haunting them for for some time. And this is this is not going away. They they've had a um, they had a poor performance last year, and now at the moment the, the government is trying to. Uh, pass um, a tax reform in order to help balance their, their, their fiscal accounts. Their, their fiscal rule is tied to the to the oil price, mm. and that's definitely been, uh, had to be un- adjusted due to um, the collapse on the oil price last year, um, and therefore the, their capacity to, act- to, actually, um, to actually spend more. So now the, the, new, the new tax reform will, will try to raise revenue by uh, just around Two percent of um, of GDP over the next ten years, um, and it will tackle 
big problems with um, uh, with inequality by broadening as well the the VAT and tackling as well climate change. This has been one of the few countries that have been actually having a, an active policy on, on climate change, trying to promote um, more uh, more green policies. And actually, it's it's been it's surprising to see that, and it's very positive to see that coming from from Latin America. Still, I think although this is under discussion now, I don't think it's going to be much of a news on this until June. But uh, Colombia will will might struggle a little bit on the on the currency front. They have more links to the to the U.S. in terms of trade than some of the other countries. But still, I think the currency remains very weak, and uh, they don't have much more space to to stimulate the economy. So I would I would be a bit cautious on on the outlook for for Colombia for this year. Yeah, for for those who don't know, Colombia has uh, this uh, fiscal rule as that is ironclad actually you could see it over over many many decades that it's uh, kind of been in place and it's actually kept them relatively stable compared to a lot of their you know, nearby nearby neighbors obviously venezuela being one of them mm-hmm. uh which has you know obviously had a huge impact uh on on colombia you know uh, any sort of geopolitical analysis one of the largest factors of instability in the country is whether your neighbor is is going through major problems and uh and that suddenly has had a big impact on colombia from from the venezuelan situation which uh, remains very problematic yeah so the thing in in colombia the the oil that comes out from the orinoco belt there it's very it's very thick um, very thick oil so it's, it's a bit expensive to refine as well so what they what they do is, is they normally sell it to the us which is very good for jet fuel and so it's uh, it's not the most efficient way of <laughs> of uh, of uh, of producing oil producing fuel mm. so yeah it's uh, it's a bit of an old school method so um we're, we're coming back south and to the other largest economy or second largest uh, in in size at least is argentina you know always the the perennial basket case in terms of uh, investment at least anyway I guess it's it's a dollarized economy because no one will take the local currency. Mm. <laughs> what's uh, what's the the shape? Uh, you know, I, I always find Argentina very interesting. Everyone gets very excited, loses a lot of money, and then and then gets very disappointed. And it's a, it's a sort of five year cycle between you know agony and ecstasy yeah. <laughs> in Argentinian fixed income investments. The, the noisy neighbors, as yeah. we like to refine. Uh, to, to, oh, to of course, yeah, you're you're Uruguayan, so yes. you're you're definitely got very very noisy neighbors. <laughs> so. Yeah, so Argentina was already under distress uh, before the pandemic. So they they had a, a debt to GDP of around ninety percent and an annual inflation above fifty percent. So they were already um, they were already in trouble. They had no access to to international markets after their um, the the let's say the debt restructuring deal. Um, let's call it a deal uh, of around sixty five billion dollars and. They they faced the the, the pandemic as, as as good as they could. They they still have a big shortage of vaccines. They received a nominal donation from Russia uh, for their the Sputnik Five vaccine, um, but uh, they're they're now they're struggling to to fund enough doses to to vaccinate the population, um, and that's this is gonna take a long time to 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 to, re- to recover. Uh, Argentina, as you were saying, uh, is a dollarized economy. Just uh, just as a reference, they have multiple like over six or seven 
or eight different exchange rates of the dollar, depending if you are an exporter, if you are a producer of soybeans, or if you are, you know, different different sectors have different dollar exchange rates, which is a recipe for for failure completely in a, in an economy that has capital controls that are so so strict, and with a with an inflation of over uh, now close to sixty percent actually. It's obvious that people will go and seek refuge in, in some other harder, harder asset. Uh, but yeah, Argentina will continue to to struggle mostly because they don't have a, let's say, a, an agreement in the country of where the country should go, how they are going to come up with a fiscal, credible fiscal solution to um, to help balance the the the, the budget. Uh, it, it happens that every new president that comes into Argentina tries to start over again and cleans everything before the, what, what the previous guy has, has had done. Um, and they were going to have midterm elections now in October, which is going to be a, a sort of a referendum on, on Fernandez's um, leadership and in a, in a very, very divided Peronist party. So the, the shadow of Christina Kirchner, the, the vice president at the moment, is it's becoming uh, a bit of a problem for him. So I don't see a, an easy solution for, for Argentina. They've tried to trying to take advantage from the commodity boom and the soybeans uh, increase um, by increasing export tariffs for, for producers, because it's the only way that they can to actually get hold of, um, of hard currency. So I don't think it's a it's a very investable story at the moment. Mm, no, well, certainly not. Maybe a restructuring story, but certainly not a. It is not certainly not an investable story. It is great. Well, Joaquin, thank you very much for that uh, sort of very quick uh, run through and, and quick uh, worldview of, of Latin America. I think it was uh, absolutely fascinating, and certainly hope, hopefully allows our listeners to get to um, get up to speed with some of the key issues that are going on at the moment and. Of course, uh, if they want to find out more, uh, you know, um, see, subscribe to some of our macro research and they're able to get our, our latest views. Thank you very much, everybody, for, for listening. And of course, if you have any questions, uh, please then send them in to us. Uh, and if there's any topics you would like us to cover, we'd also uh, happily accept them. Uh, so thank you very much and speak to you soon. <laughs>